Our first scripture reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 21. Acts 2. The uh, previous verses in that chapter talk about the uh, outbreak of speaking in tongues at at, uh, Pentecost in Jerusalem with people from different uh, areas of the world at that time um, speaking and uh, speaking in languages they didn't know and others hearing their their own languages and uh, some of the people in the crowd becoming confused by that and some accusing the disciples of being drunk. And then from verse 14, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then would you also turn please to Joel chapter 2, the passage that was quoted there. Verses 21 to, I'll read verses 21 to 32. The text for the sermon is verses 28 to 32. And then I'll read from the Westminster Confession. Joel chapter 2, from verse 21. Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. And he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. And the threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. 
and my people will never be put to shame. Now our text. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And then from the Westminster Confession, and uh, again we have a look at chapter 1, article 1 in the Westminster There is a lot in this uh, first chapter and also this first article. So it doesn't hurt us to have a look at it two weeks in a row. Article 1. This is the chapter on the doctrine of Scripture. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of that truth, And for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that it is uh, easy for us to be inattentive and we know that uh, because of that inattention and the disregarding of your word very often as well that we deserve in ourselves that you would cease to teach us. But we pray that you will instead show us mercy for Christ's sake and Father that you would continue to place within us a desire to hear your word and that you would also help us to understand and to grow in knowledge of your word and in Christian maturity. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, we, uh, we looked last time at th- that same article that we just read, Article 1 in Chapter 1, but we really only dealt with two aspects of it last time. We dealt with the subject of uh, the two main aspects of revelation, general revelation and special revelation, and then we also looked at the necessity of that special revelation. 
But there is another element in this article that we can consider, and we do consider this afternoon, and that concerns the what are sometimes referred to as the modes of revelation. I'll explain shortly what that means. The modes of revelation and uh, which of those have ceased. And the Westminster Confession in this article says that the necessity of Scripture is even greater now than it was previously due to the former ways, uh, diverse manners at sundry times, the former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people, unto His people being now ceased. Since all these other modes have ceased, that makes the Scripture all the more necessary for us. And that view that there are certain ways in which God has revealed himself that have ceased, that view is what is sometimes called cessationism. And that is a view that is held by our churches. Of course, there are many other churches that would disagree with this uh, view of cessationism. And some of those will even argue that the very passage that we're looking at this afternoon... Joel chapter 2, particularly verses 28 and 29, uh, that those verses actually prove that extraordinary means of revelation, uh, such as prophecy, dreams and visions, that those things are actually the norm for the church today. So the Westminster says certain things have ceased, and others say, no, no, this passage in Joel proves that those same things have uh, are to continue and to be the norm for today. And so we look at this passage to see if the cessationism that we find in the Westminster Confession is bibli biblically correct, but also along with that, and that which is also extremely important, perhaps in some ways more important, that we understand uh, what difference the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ has made to Revelation. And what difference his coming has made to the work of the Holy Spirit. And those are issues that lie behind that question of cessationism. But in order to do that, we need to understand the nature of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, what's sometimes referred to as the prophetic perspective of the, especially the Old Testament prophecy. And that is a... Uh, a big and quite a difficult subject, uh, so uh, there will be uh, some detail in that in this afternoon's sermon. In that sense, you could call it uh, quite uh, um, instructional or doctrinal, but uh, nevertheless, to, uh, it is a big and important subject and one that can be difficult uh, for us to get our heads around. And uh, it's one that comes up in a lot of different areas. When we understand the nature of Old Testament prophecy and how it works, it becomes a lot easier to deal with questions like this claim of certain gifts being around today, which we would deny, but also questions of uh, infant baptism, even that, and looking at some of the Old Testament passages that speak about the new covenant and how the coming of Christ changes that. Uh, if we can get our heads around that nature of Old Testament prophecy, it helps us to uh, understand more clearly the difference between the Old and the New Testament. Three points then as we look at the uh, prophetic perspective 
on, as we find that in Joel chapter 2 in our text. First of all, the day of the Spirit. Joel is uh, prophesying a day of the Spirit. He is prophesying a day of judgment. And he is prophesying a day of salvation. A day of the Spirit, a day of judgment, and a day of salvation. In the first place, then, I want to point out that uh, Old Testament prophecy frequently lumps together similar events. And uh, often they're things that in redemptive history, they take place in more than one phase, but the Old Testament often lumps them all together and just puts them in one big basket. Uh, For example, the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Old Testament prophecy lumps the first and the second coming together and just sees it in terms of one coming of the Messiah. And then in the New Testament, we actually learn that they're separated, that there's two phases, a first coming and a second coming. And that's what we mean by the prophetic perspective, that lumping of things together, also sometimes called prophetic foreshortening. And uh, I have uh, mentioned before a few times that popular illustration of prophetic foreshortening, the two headlights in the distance on a flat, straight road, the two headlights on the car at night look like just one light, and as they get closer and closer to you, you start to see that there's actually two lights. And uh, that's the illustration that's sometimes given that of this uh, process. But uh, I've give another illustration that perhaps us understand also how this works. Uh, if, you, if a friend of yours asked you to visit and you said, uh, sure, I'll do that, I'm going to visit you, uh, you could understand that in two different ways. You could mean, I'm going to visit you once and then that'll be it. Or it could mean, I'm going to visit you and then I'm going to keep on visiting you regularly. Those kind of distinctions are things that we only make uh, on a need-to-know basis very often. We, uh, we give people information, we, we perhaps put it very generally in some instances, but if they need to know more, then we give them more information. Uh, so the Old Testament saints did not need to know all the details about Christ's coming. They needed to know that he was coming, they didn't need to know that it was in two visits. The New Testament saints needed to know it was in two visits, two comings, And so it's uh, it's put in that way in the New Testament. So let's see how that applies to the book of Joel and what we read here in uh, in our text. We read in verse 28, it will come about after this. And those words after this point us back to what's been in the previous section, previous verses, especially uh, in the uh, the section that we read just uh, prior to our text where uh, we find there a description of the restoration of Israel, a restoration particularly of the nation of Israel, a restoration of those who were rescued from the Assyrian destruction of the northern kingdom and a restoration also of those who were rescued from exile in Babylon, uh, all brought together in post-exilic Israel. Though, of course, that prophecy also is bigger than that, Another example of things being lumped together, that description that we read in the earlier part of Joel 2 is much bigger than 
what we find in post-exilic Israel, and it points ahead even further to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the restoration that he brings, and actually even further ahead than that, to the great restoration at the end of time when we're all in God's presence in the new heavens and the new earth and have the fullest expression of restoration that, that can be had. We don't experience that fully now. But here it's talking especially about the restoration of post-exilic Israel. And sometime after that, after Israel is rescued from captivity and from exile, sometime after that, the Lord was signalling that he had plans for an even bigger and better restoration connected to the coming of his son. Indeed, it is precisely because of the coming of the Lord Jesus and his work that there was also to be a great day when his spirit would be poured out upon the church. And that's what's talked about in verses 28 and 29. Of course, the Holy Spirit was already at work in the Old Testament. And I know that uh, quite often in our Bible study groups, this question comes up, was the Holy Spirit working, and if so, how in the Old Testament? Uh, But uh, uh, already this morning too in the service, we read uh, Psalm 51, uh, David's plea that the Spirit would continue to work in him. There's no doubt the Holy Spirit was uh, very active in the Old Testament, uh, bringing about faith in the elect, bringing revelation under inspiration, uh, causing God's people to understand that revelation, bringing them comfort in times of grief and tragedy, giving them gifts to use, strengthening them to fight against God's enemies and so on. But on the day that Joel is talking about, sometime after the return of Israel from captivity, the Holy Spirit would be poured out language that refers to an even greater abundance, not a trickle, but a a river gushing out, a pouring out of the Spirit, affecting more of God's people more completely. The greater abundance of the Spirit's work is seen in that expression in verse 28, that this work would be upon all mankind or all flesh, which we shouldn't understand to mean all without exception, but rather to mean all types of people. And that even uh, hints, by the way, at Gentiles being included. Not just Jews, but all types of people. Gentiles as well. And that, that uh, truth that this concerns all types of people is seen in what's then said about how the Spirit would uh, be working in your sons and your daughters, old men and young, male and female servants as well. This is a way of saying that the Spirit's work would be so abundant that it would take in all age groups, all social classes, and both genders among God's people. But it is not saying that every single person would experience this in the same way. For example, that they would all be able to prophesy or speak in tongues. That is not what it means. Nevertheless, the evidence of this outpouring is that people from all ages, social classes and genders would be conveyors of revelation. That would be the evidence of this outpouring of the Spirit. 
that there would also be an outpouring of revelation involving people from all different uh, classes and types within uh, God's church. And that would be seen then through prophecy, dreams and visions. And this is what we mean by modes of revelation. Different ways that God communicated verbally to his people. Modes of revelation. You know, we do that too in communicating with people. We have different ways of uh, conveying uh, certain truths and ideas to people. Sometimes we speak it in words that can be heard. Another time we might use a symbol, peace man, thumbs up. We use symbols to convey certain ideas and uh, also we use body language to convey verbal ideas even though we're not speaking in words. We can certainly make, it, make uh, what we intend clear in that way. And God himself had all these different ways of communicating his verbal revelation to people, uh, some of it through prophecy, some of it through dreams and visions, but there are other things not mentioned in Joel. Uh, also, we could include in that sending mess- angels as messengers, voices in the night, theophanies, an appearance of God in which he spoke out of a burning bush or a pillar of cloud or fire, and also in the New Testament especially, the interpretation of language, of tongues, of foreign languages, uh, which when interpreted also brings messages from God, communication, verbal communication from God. And this is what the Westminster is referring to by diverse manners at sundry times, the former ways of God revealing his will to his people. Obviously, the term former, like the term now, terms now ceased, implies that we should not expect that this range of different modes of revelation would be available for today. What the Westminster is making clear to us is that instead of that, God has put an end to all of those variety of modes and reduced it all to just one thing, and that is the revelation of his will to us through means of Scripture. But this is the point, the very point, that is disputed by some, particularly within neo-Pentecostal circles. Uh, Neo-Pentecostal is a term that means new, a new Pentecost. People who want what happened on the day of Pentecost to just keep going and going and going on into the present time. And even see those things, dreams, visions, prophecy, speaking in tongues, as a mark of being a spirit-filled life in the church of today or in the individual Christian of today. Now, there are a number of reasons why we don't take Joel 2 as requiring that. We don't understand Joel 2 as requiring prophecy, revelational dreams and visions to be available from Pentecost on. And uh, before we look at a couple of the particular uh, textual arguments you might say on that, and I'm not going to go into all of those, but I'll mention a couple. Before we do that, by way of background, I want to say again something about the nature of the prophetic perspective. Because if we don't understand that, it's going to be harder for us to understand what Joel was saying and how that was fulfilled in Acts. And the point I want to make with that is that 
because of this lumping of several phases of fulfillment together, this allows Old Testament prophecies to have one part of them fulfilled at a particular time and then cease to operate, while another part may continue and need an even greater fulfillment in the future. So I'll say that again. The nature of lumping several phases of fulfillment together means that one part of an Old Testament prophecy can be fulfilled and it no longer operates, except that that we read about it in the Scripture and learn from it. And another part, on the other hand, may need an even greater fulfillment, for example, when the Lord Jesus returns. That's the nature of Old Testament prophecy. And it makes it uh, something that is complex, uh, something that we have to learn about as we study the Scripture. And it means that not everything we read in these prophecies of the Old Testament, not everything is going to remain permanently in force. Some things will be fulfilled earlier, some later. Consider the matter of Revelation, and that's the important one here. God verbally revealed himself in various modes or ways in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, he sent his spirit to give some understanding of that revelation to some people in Israel. Then in the New Testament times, he sent his son to take all of that revelation and to not only to fulfill it, but to take it all to a higher level and replace all of these various modes because the Lord Jesus himself is the great prophet. And that's the point of Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2. That God took all those various Old Testament things and he drew them all together in the Lord Jesus Christ and left us just with the Lord Jesus and not with all these other things. Once the word of Christ was completed especially. And in that connection too, he caused his word, the word about the Lord Jesus Christ to be completed in such a way that all the little bits and pieces were drawn together in a finished scripture, a finished word of God. And he also caused at that time his spirit to be poured out because of the coming of the Lord Jesus, because his work was finished, that the spirit was then poured out to give a better understanding of that completed word by a greater number of God's people. Even though in that case, uh, with the Lord Jesus uh, coming again, we would say that the fulfilment of the Spirit's work awaits still a completion in the next life and therefore it continues. The revelation ceases, new revelation ceases, but the work of the Spirit continues. In addition to that, the Lord gave evidences that the Holy Spirit was indeed poured out. And he gave evidences by the, in the same breath that the apostles were authorized to complete the Scriptures. He gave signs. Acts 2, verses 17 to 21, focuses on the sign of speaking in tongues. And Peter quotes Joel 2, verses 28 to 32, in a way that shows that speaking in tongues was a fulfillment of what Joel spoke about and called prophecy. 
with the sons and the daughters and the old and the young and so on. For speaking in tongues was moved by the spirit of prophecy and interpreted tongues is a form of prophecy. The point I want to make from this is that the signs of that event were temporary while the underlying principles of revelation and the principles of the presence of the Holy Spirit, those things, those truths remain permanent. And uh, perhaps to help us understand that by way of illustration, uh, you could look at the New Covenant as being a little bit like a new road configuration. You know, sometimes the Department of Transport changes the way uh, a roundabout or a road is set up and you get a big sign up saying new road layout or new road configuration. And that sign is put up there until the work is finished on that new configuration or until at least people become used to it and once they are used to it then the sign is taken down. And it doesn't do for someone to come along and say to the Department of Transport, you've got to leave those signs up because there's a new road configuration. So it is with the signs of prophecy, tongues and miracles. They were temporary signs that were left up, they were left in place until people became used to the new road configuration of the new covenant due to the coming of Christ and the outpouring of his spirit. And don't demand that the signs the tongues and prophecy, that those things have to be left in place permanently. Well, I said I'd mention a couple of other passages. There are uh, at least two other reasons why we should not expect prophecy and tongues to continue. One of those is because once all prophecy, everything that needed to be set down, once it was all set down in Scripture and the Scripture is complete, You do not need new revelation and the claim to have new revelation undermines the claim that the scripture is absolutely sufficient for all of our needs. As 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 state, that the scripture is sufficient for all good works that God requires of us. And if it's so sufficient, then why do you need anything else? We don't. And then a second point that comes in a second uh, passage that relates to this, because speaking in tongues at least, among other things that it pointed to, like the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there's also a, a, a judgment element in it, a warning of judgment upon apostate Israel, as explained in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20 forward. And the judgment there was shown by the speaking of Gentile languages a warning to Israel that if they did not repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, then they would hear foreign languages, all right, the language of the Romans, in fact. Uh, The foreign languages, the gospel, gospel would go out to the Gentiles and God's nation Israel would no longer be the special covenant nation and uh, there would also be uh, Gentiles used to uh, invade Israel and to chastise Israel. God's people. Now, uh, speaking of the signs of judgment, as I say, tongues was, among other things, a warning of judgment upon national Israel. 
We look at that in our second point, the day of judgment. Straight away after Joel foretells the spirit of that the, the spirit of prophecy uh, that would give rise to speaking in tongues at Pentecost, straight away after that he mentions terrible signs of judgment before the end would come. Verses thirty and thirty-one: wonders seen in, in the sky and on the earth, blood and fire and smoke and the darkening of the sun and the moon looking like blood. And uh, as you may have noticed, there's been quite a bit of interest in that lately. There's uh, been quite a few things uh, popping up about blood moons and prophecies thereof, that kind of thing in certain circles. But you see, these things are signs throughout the Bible. They're used as symbols or signs of war, invasion and siege. And this kind of language is used quite often in the Old Testament as a way of describing or prophesying the invasion of Israel. For example, in Joel 2 verse 10, it is used of the invasion of locusts and probably also of the Assyrians. In Zephaniah 1 verses 14 to 16, it's used to describe the coming Babylonian, or rather to describe the Babylonian invasion. And similar language in Isaiah 13 verses 9 and 10 and other passages as well. The idea being that the the, the tramping of the feet of a large number of infantry uh, combined with the the hooves of the horses in large cavalries and the chariot wheels and the supply wagons and all the rest of it uh, churned up a huge amount of dust in that part of the world at that time. Enough dust churned up by it to darken the sun and turn the moon to a dull red colour. These are symbols of invasion. Acts 2 verses 19 to 21 quotes these these verses from Joel 2 as a warning, a warning to Israel to repent. They've crucified their Messiah. They need to repent or else they will face invasion. And the speaking in tongues, the foreign languages, is part of that warning. And as we know, because the the, uh, people of that time did not repent, Some did, but as a whole, the nation did not. And so the Romans were sent anyway. They 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 sent their army in AD 70 and fulfilled these signs, uh, acting as God's agents for judgment. Does this refer also to the end of the world? Well, many think so, and many uh, take the use of this invasion language in Matthew 24 as proof that Just before the end of the world, before the Lord returns, there will be another great event, another great war, uh, a great world war perhaps, Armageddon, uh, along these lines. And that's what Matthew 24, many think, is uh, speaking about. And uh, while I would argue that the use of those signs in Matthew 24 is referring only to AD 70, but I don't want to go into detail in that now and dwell on that, I simply want to point out that this judgment language has more than one phase. According to the prophetic perspective, it applied to God's judgment using the Assyrians, it applied to God's judgment using the Babylonians, and it applied to God's judgment using the Romans in AD 70. And even if it does not apply to a great battle, a literal battle, 
just before the Lord Jesus returns, it does remind us of this, that while God has done something incredibly great and wonderful, he has sent his son to die on the cross and he has poured out his spirit uh, upon his church and he has completed his word and given us that too. Those are great things. But if you reject that word, and if you reject the Son of God, and if you blaspheme against his spirit, then you face a judgment of blood, fire, smoke, and darkness. Because hell is infinitely worse than the fire and smoke It is infinitely darker than the darkness of invasion by armies. And it's very easy to get caught up in speculation as we read these passages. Speculation about the end times and yet forget the crucial issue here and the crucial warning that we must not ignore the word of God, the completed word of God, the coming of his son into this world and the pouring out of his spirit for that matter. However, the prophecy in Joel 2 is far from all doom and gloom. The great and awesome day of the Lord, verse 31, is not only a day of judgment against God's enemies, it is also a day of salvation for God's people. Our third and final point. And briefly, we see this in verse 32. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. There will be those who escape. There are survivors whom the Lord calls, who then in turn call on him to save them, and he will. And this also is quoted in Acts 2 verse 21, and again alluded to in Acts 2.39. Here there's this situation where God has sent his son who has finished his work. He's now poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost and there are still those who are not listening and they're warned of a coming judgment but they are also told that this is not a case for despair because there are still those whom God will call to himself for the promise is to you and your children and for all those who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself including also Gentiles. This promise also involves that prophetic perspective or prophetic foreshortening. It's a lumping together of all those who have called on the Lord and were delivered from the invasion of Assyria in the northern kingdom, from Babylon, from AD 70. And this one still applies today both to Jews and Gentiles, to all who cry to God to deliver them for the sake of the Lord Jesus from the fire and the smoke and the darkness of hell. Creating a church of survivors. That's what we are. A church of survivors in which closeness to God through the Lord Jesus is now found already through his word and through his spirit. Joel 2, like Acts 2. It's not there for us to to move us to start looking for extraordinary gifts like prophecy and speaking in tongues. It's not there to get us to speculate about what might happen just before the Lord Jesus returns. It is there to help us see the need for us to turn to the Lord Jesus now, 
today when you hear his voice, to return to him while you can and know the salvation of of God through the Lord Jesus Christ that creates survivors. The one who is the heir of all things through whom God has spoken to us in these last days. Creating not only survivors, but survivors who can draw very close to God because the Holy Spirit is poured out and now indwells all of God's people from the greatest to the least. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to learn more about your plan of salvation with its various phases and the way that this is unfolded in Scripture so that we can see more clearly what is meant for us, what is meant for us to have in this present life by way of gifts and what we are called to do in our lives in this present life and what to expect in the days ahead to let us know also what has ceased and to help us focus on knowing and serving and obeying you according to your word with the aid of your indwelling spirit, using the, the ordinary gifts that you have given for the building up of your church and also with the aid of your completed word so that we do not look for anything else but uh, simply your word with the aid of your spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are prophets, but uh, not by way of receiving new revelation, rather to give a witness to the Word of God, witness to Scripture by word and deed. Hymn number 468, we will stand to sing, and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 468.
after the blessing is our doxology. We sing number 280, stanzas 1 and 3. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>